Hello, this is Jen Rubin, and this is Jen Rubin's Green Room. Today we have a guest who's going to help us unravel a lot of confusing information we're getting about the state of Israel. There is always controversy involving Israel, whether it's involving Iran, whether it's involving the Palestinians, whether it's involving the religious community in Israel. But it seems of late that things have gotten even more complex and confusing. There is a constitutional crisis ongoing there that in some respects bears resemblance to the right-wing movements we have seen in the United States. They're heavily influenced by the religious right. But in other respects, it's uniquely Israeli. And of late, there have been enormous demonstrations, unlike anything that Israel has seen in its recent past. And those demonstrations have been directed towards the Netanyahu government, which has pushed through at least one so-called judicial reform. And we'll talk about whether that's really a reform or not. And the country has uh, exploded, quite frankly. There's been a broad coalition of groups, business, secular Jews, religious Jews, who have come together week after week for over 30 weeks now in protest of this effort to what the government says would be increasing democracy, but which they quite, I think, correctly feel would be a effort to subdue the judiciary and make them subservient to this right-wing government. So to explain all of that and more is someone who has had decades of experience in Israel and the Middle East, Dennis Ross. Dennis was a special envoy to the Middle East. He has served in Republican administrations and Democratic administrations. So Dennis, welcome to the show. Really good to be with you. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. The Middle East is always an interesting place and it's gotten to be more interesting of late. Let's start with what is happening in Israel um, in terms of its domestic judicial reform. Could you explain to our listeners essentially what the issue is and why there has been such a civil, uh, really, uproar over uh, the plan that the government has forced through? So there really are two different sides to this, as you might imagine. Uh, The government represents uh, a group that obviously people are aware of. Uh, It has a set of ministers who are quite extreme in terms of their their views. They are interested in changing the power of the judiciary because the judiciary imposes a real limit on what they can do. At least they perceive that to be the case. The irony is, if you look at people like Ben Gavir and Smotrich, who believe in fully populating the West Bank and giving the Palestinians who are there a choice of either living under the terms that they would impose or leaving, uh, they see inevitably the Supreme Court imposing a limit, though the irony is that the limits they have imposed relate to private Palestinian property. A lot of state property, they allow building to go ahead, but they they see the, the Supreme Court as being the main obstacle to pursuing what they would like to see happen on the West Bank. They have some support within the country as a whole because the Mizrahi, those who are the Jews who come from the Arab world, have always felt that they have been looked down upon by the Ashkenazi elite, that the Supreme Court itself is dominated by the Ashkenazi elite who have a different worldview than they they have. And so they find the idea of rebalancing the institutions as something that is natural. Now, even they, however, seem uh, to want this done in a way that reflects not simply imposition, but some kind of consensus. And I say that because we have about regularly around 70% of the Israeli public. So that clearly represents a segment of the, the Mizrahi as well that are saying they don't favor what the government has been doing in terms of pursuing something so fundamental, but on the basis of an imposition as opposed to a discussion, a dialogue, and a consensus. Now, that of that 70%, there's at least half of the country that feels this is a fundamental threat to democracy. Israel has a separation of powers, but it's not like us because they're a parliamentary system. There is no difference between the executive branch and the parliament 
the prime minister is ahead of a coalition, so long as he's ahead of a coalition, he has, by definition, a majority within the Knesset. So whatever he wants means he'll get through the Knesset. So the only break on executive power is the Supreme Court. And what you see is an unbelievable cross-section of Israel out there demonstrating. what Anyone who thinks that Israel doesn't have a democratic ethos isn't paying attention. We have seen now 31 weeks where up to even 5% of the entire population is out there demonstrating. If you go to the demonstrations, you'll see every segment of society is represented. Every demographic is represented. Uh, you have people who never ever would have dreamed that they would be at a demonstration. They are at demonstrations because they believe the fate of Israel's democracy and its fundamental democratic identity is at stake. So you have a polarization to be sure, but it's very clear that a majority of Israelis think the way the government has gone about this is wrong. And it's reflected also in the polling, even as it relates to if you had elections today, what would the elections produce? If you look at the last decade in Israel, we've had new parties emerge, but they're always within the blocks. They never move the, they never move the needle between the blocks. Now there's a very big, significant move from what would be the governing coalition to the opposition. So that's significant, and obviously, I think it affects some of the choices that the Prime Minister of Israel is making. Now, as some listeners may understand, the government can stay in power so long as it has um, a uh, the confidence of the entire coalition. So they don't have to have elections until many years from now, right. um, even if there is this tumult, even if there is this uproar. And it seems as though the prime minister has decided simply to gut it out, to force this issue. Um, can you explain a little bit of what his thinking is? And at the same time, this specific issue that he pushed through was a measure to, it's a little complicated, but to disempower the judiciary from considering the reasonableness of a government action. In the United States, quite frankly, we, don't, we have a similar concept under due process that it has to pass a reasonableness test. A reasonable person would understand the rationale for doing that. The government doesn't want the judiciary to have that branch, presumably because they think that they will be accused of doing unreasonable things. So explain a little bit about why the prime minister is so dogged in his pursuit of this and whether we're going to stop at this relatively technical change or whether he really intends to go back for another bite and another bite with some more extreme measures. Clearly, there are those in Israel who are convinced that even if he's saying he doesn't intend to go beyond one more of the provisions, there were four provisions to start with uh, in this. Some call it a reform, others call it a, an overhaul. The four provisions were uh, removing the reasonableness uh, standard, uh, as you said. Um, the second element of it was that uh, you would have a judge's selection committee changed in terms of its makeup. Currently, it has nine people on it, three of whom come from the Supreme Court, two of whom come from the, the Bar Association, and the remainder come from the government and the opposition. And the, the initial proposal on that was to give the governing coalition a majority, a built-in majority. Presently, to, to appoint a judge, you have to have seven of nine uh, to be to be selected. So the argument that, the, again, that those in the government have made is that you're giving the Supreme Court a built-in veto because you have three there. Now, that assumes those threes will always agree, which isn't necessarily the case, but that was the argument they made. And what the prime minister is saying is the other provisions beyond the judge's selection committee, one which is a, a, just a sheer override with a narrow majority of 61, which would produce majoritarian rule, the Knesset could override any decision uh, by the Supreme Court. That, he says, we're not going to legislate. That's gone. There was another provision, which was to put in every ministry, to allow the legal advisor in every ministry to be appointed by the minister uh, and, in effect, to be answerable to the minister. 
Currently, the legal advisors in the ministries are appointed by the Civil Service Commission, and they're answerable not to the minister, but to the attorney general. The attorney general is traditionally a nonpartisan position. So this is to politicize the legal advisors, which the people over there will say, but that's the way you have it. And it's true. It's the way we have it. Um, but we also have a constitution. We also have a separation of powers. So we're, we're a different system than they are. Now, that provision and the, and the provision on just a narrow override, uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu is saying those are gone. We're not going to legislate those. But what he is saying is that when the winter session of the Knesset comes, he will still go ahead with the Judges Selection Committee, although he is also putting out that it will not be the proposal that they originally made, which would have given the government an automatic majority. He seems to be willing to embrace another proposal that would give an equal number to the government and to the opposition of appointees on the Judges Selection Committee. Uh, now, on the one hand, that sounds like it is, it's perfectly balanced, which is true, but if they're completely polarized, how do you ever get a decision made? So that's a question I think that still would have to be answered. On the reasonableness standard, I believe that the reason he, he decided to go ahead with it was he was being very much pressed by the Minister of Justice, Yerev Levin, uh, and by his ministers, Ben Gavir and Smotrich, that he had to get something done in the judicial reform during this summer session. Now, Netanyahu understood that in the dialogue that was taking place under the auspices of President Herzog, there was, in fact, a point where there was an agreement that the opposition was prepared to agree on the, on the criteria that would limit the scope of how the reasonable standard could be applied and to what issues it could be applied. Uh, and the interesting thing is they did, there was an agreement between the opposition and between the government representatives but the opposition said, we'll do that provided you will pursue none of the other three provisions for the remainder of your term. Now, there was a discussion till the last minute where there was a compromise that was laid out where the opposition said, okay, instead of till the end of your term, we'll do it for 15 months. You won't introduce any of the other provisions. And the government said, no, maximum five months. There's this extraordinary moment before the vote, where the Minister of Defense is, you know, Gallant, you have Gallant is sort of saying to the Minister of Justice, Yuriv uh, Levin, he's saying, you gotta give me something. And Yuriv Levin is saying no, and Bibi is sitting between them, and he's not saying a word. And I think that was very revealing. I think Levin, Smotrich, and Ben Gavir pretty much threatened, if you accept this compromise, you go beyond the five months, we will bring down the government. Now, in the past, I would have assumed that Netanyahu would have called their bluff because I believe it is a bluff. Where else are they going to go? The polling shows if there's a new election, they're all out. Um, but in the current circumstance, I think he feared, he feared their threat and believed they would, they would act on their threat. And so he, in effect, he backed off. Uh, and he's gone on since that time, as you know, he's been giving lots of interviews here to try to minimize the significance of this, says it's not going to change anything. He's no longer going to do the override provision. He's not going to politicize the, the legal advisor appointments. You'll still see something on the judge's selection committee because that was actually the provision most important to Levin. But even that one seems to have been scaled back somewhat. I mean, a lot of ways you could say for all the frustration of the opposition, they've clearly had an effect. First, there was a pause, uh, and even now, we know at least two of these provisions are unlikely to be pursued, and there's also been some scaling back even of this one. But the opposition, and this gets to what you were asking at the outset, uh, the opposition doesn't believe him. They think if he gets this done, he'll still end up pursuing the others. This is such an unusual situation because we're so used to seeing Netanyahu as such a strong leader, as the guy who is driving the coalition and not the coalition driving him. How has that dynamic changed so dramatically? Is it age? Is it the strength and the extreme politics of his coalition partners? Why is he not driving this train? Why are they? 
I think there are two elements that explain it to me. First, in every government he was in before, he always had people to his left and his right. And it gave him uh, an enormous capacity to maneuver. And he, to be fair, he's a master of it. And he always has been a master of it. Now he has no maneuver because he's to the left of his coalition. Now, why does he have this coalition? Because the center left boycotted a government that he would head. Because he's under trial and they say you're under trial, how can you be a prime minister part-time when you're under trial? Uh, and so, you know, if you, if you suspend yourself, that's one thing, but so long as you're there, we won't join you. Well, that left him, he could only form a government with the religious uh, and with, this is a kind of interesting misnomer, the religious Zionist party. Uh, this is a, and this, these basically are people who are, you know, followers originally of Mayor Kahana. Uh, they were always seen as fringe elements in Israel. Uh, Yitzhak, Yitzhak Shamir, uh, who was obviously Likud, and, and I would even say on the right side of Likud, when Mayor Kahana would speak in the Knesset, he would leave because he said he's outside, you know, he, he's basically outside the pale. So uh, Bibi couldn't have a government without them, uh, and they're quite ideological. And so it's harder to maneuver with them given the nature of their ideology. If, he, if they threaten to bring the government down, even though you and I might say, okay, but isn't that really a bluff because where, do they, where else do they have to go? Part of his concern, I think, is there's so much true believers in their ideology that they'll follow through on the threat. Uh, and you know, having said that, if you ask me if there's a breakthrough with the Saudis, and then he has a choice between them leaving the government and doing the breakthrough, he'll do the breakthrough. Because this, for him, is something he's believed in for a long time. He's always wanted to show he could achieve what others couldn't achieve. This would, in a sense, be full vindication of that. So while, he, in my mind, he wasn't prepared to break the government at this point over the reasonable standard, uh, he, he would be if there's a breakthrough with the Saudis. And we're going to get to the Saudis in just a minute, but just to tie this issue up. The Supreme Court has announced, uh, my understanding is, that they're then going to consider the reasonableness change itself. So the Supreme Court is going to rule on that. And the prime minister has refused to say that he would abide by their decision. Um, in the United States, if a president announces, I'm not going to follow the Supreme Court, that would be a constitutional brouhaha. Yeah. Um, and frankly, even former President Trump never went that far. How does that translate in the Israeli context? Uh, I think we would see uh, a response that would dwarf everything we've seen to date. Wow. It would be a constitutional crisis, even though they don't have a constitution. Uh, it, is, it would raise questions about would different institutions, uh, especially in the security establishment, would they abide by directives from their prime minister at that point? I think it opens up uh, not just a can of worms, it opens up basic questions. And I think the, we would very likely see a general strike called. Uh, it was the threat of a general strike which led Prime Minister Netanyahu to call for a pause and to go to the, the discussions at the president's house to begin with. So, I, you know, this, there is probably a little bit of a game of chicken going on right now. The Supreme Court has agreed to hear the petition uh, of those who are saying this was not, this, this, the Knesset cannot strike down the reasonable standard because it's a tool that the Supreme Court has used. There is a complication here because this, this standard that was revoked, it was revoked as an amendment to a basic law. And the Supreme Court historically has not made decisions on basic laws or those that have been amended. So there's a kind of, <laughs> we're in a world where there's no precedent for the Supreme Court intervening on an issue like this, but there's also no precedent for a prime minister not going along with the Supreme Court decision. So we're about to see one of these areas where there's been no precedent, there's gonna be a precedent set, potentially. And we've already seen some really remarkable scenes, including the president um, 
get so involved in a matter of such high controversy. Right. Uh, listeners may not know, but the Israeli prime minister has essentially been a figurehead, a ceremonial leader, sort of a spiritual, moral, you know, unifier, um, more than the Queen of England, but still, you know, not part of the government. And here he's been very deeply involved, which I think has spoken to the seriousness and what people fear, which is a fracture in the basic uh, unification of the state, the basic, um, you know, unity of the state of Israel. And again, I think I think that's right. I think that uh, Buja Herzog, whose father was also the president, felt an obligation. One thing about the Israeli president, it is more than a ceremonial role for a couple of reasons. One, it is the president who decides who to ask to form a government after an election. And if the president makes a judgment that even not the leading vote getter, but the but someone else could have a better chance to form a government. He has the power to determine who to ask, which is interesting. Number one, number two, only the president of Israel can pardon, can issue pardons. That's also a significant power uh, to be kept in mind, given some of the current circumstances within Israel. So he he feels partly because of who he is, partly because of who his father was. He feels a deep emotional uh, commitment here, and he's using, in a sense, the the power of, it's almost like a pulpit. He has the power of the pulpit uh, because he's above politics, and I think people respect him for that. Interesting. So let's do talk uh, about the Saudis. Um, As most of our listeners know, um, during the Trump administration, one of the legitimate achievements for Israel and for the United States was um, Israel's expanded presence, acceptance in the region through the Abraham Accords. But those did not include the Saudis, um, which remain the richest, arguably the most important, the kind of um, pivot point in the um, region, and most importantly, a major opponent of Iran, which is the um, really arch enemy of Israel. What are the potential um, factors that you see in forming an agreement, and how, in the midst of this utter turmoil, <laughs> could at the same time the prime minister make a deal? And would the United States want to make a deal and allow Bibi to claim this great diplomatic and personal victory at a time that he's doing things that the government, our government, feels are quite injurious to the U.S.-Israeli relationship? Right. Well, I think, again, we have to kind of put in context what it would mean if the Saudis were to do this. The king is the custodian of the two holy mosques. They are the most significant Sunni Arab state. Uh, if they were to make peace with with Israel, it has implications not just for state-to-state relations, it has implications for the, in a sense, a reconciliation between Sunni Muslims uh, and Israel. So the, the religious content or character of this conflict, which is, even if people like me have always tried to say, no, this is a national conflict, not a religious conflict, because a religious conflict you can't solve, Suddenly, you take the religious, you not completely because Iran and others will still be opposed, but they'd be opposed regardless. You're really taking the religious content out of the Arab-Israeli conflict. Now, that's huge. That is really a huge development. Uh, and it will mean countries like Malaysia and Indonesia that are the largest Muslim-majority countries uh, in the world, they would like, very likely follow along. But one of the reasons they would also likely follow along is because the Saudis will feel a need to get something done for the Palestinians. Uh, And so it will not be, what they will get done for them is not going to end the conflict because in a lot of ways what the Palestinians required in the conflict, um, no one could do. And by the way, it's not clear that they can agree on what it would take to end the conflict. Hamas doesn't want to end the conflict. They might accept a ceasefire. Uh, And the PA, the Palestinian Authority, finds it difficult to adopt a position that's anything different from a narrative that amounts to a mythology. So you don't 
one of the things you never do when you're negotiating is you don't reconcile mythologies. You don't ask people to give them up, but you ask them to make adjustments in light of them. So the Palestinians are incapable of giving up the mythology, which means you can't end the conflict at this point. But you can probably do things that transforms the nature of the conflict. You can do things that ends the, the kind of complete diplomatic stalemate and puts you back on a path where something could be done to resolve it. What would that look like? Well, I think it's a, you know, it's a variety of things. You know, the, the Saudis will certainly want to do something as it relates to showing that they stopped annexation. Uh, one can certainly anticipate uh, that, they, that there wouldn't be further expansion of Israeli territorial control. Uh, you can certainly see uh, something done on issues of territorial contiguity. Uh, there will be an economic package, for sure, uh, that will be designed to, to really make life different and better for Palestinians. It'll be some mix of things that, as I said, are not going to end the conflict, but they can begin to transform it. They can do more to empower the Palestinian Authority. To be fair, it can't be a one-way street. It can't be something where Israel provides a whole number of things to the Palestinians and they assume no responsibilities in return. There will have to be reform on the Palestinian side. One of the reasons that the Palestinian security forces have not been acting is because the PA has become so corrupt and so illegitimate, they're not prepared to go do anything. So if you're, if you're offering a series of moves, there also has to be the assumption of responsibility, and it's going to require reform. We've seen it before. In 2007, uh, when the, the Bush administration went to Mahmoud Abbas, Abu Mazen, and basically with all the donors and said, we are prepared to provide more to you, but we're also prepared to cut you off unless you appoint Salam Fayyad as the prime minister and everything you empower him to clean everything up. We've seen it before. At that point, by the way, Fatah had very little credibility because they had just lost Gaza. Uh, and something like that's going to be required again as part of an old pa a whole package. But that again reminds you, you're getting a kind of two-way street of Israelis and Palestinians making adjustments. Now, the adjustments on the Israeli side will be way too much for Ben Gavir and Smotrich. That's why it would break the government. Uh, so you have this interesting irony that the prime minister is, will be prepared for the sake of this, which is a historic breakthrough, to do things that will break this government. And it gets back to your question from the, from the administration standpoint. The net result of this will be you will see a change in the Israeli government. Either under those circumstances, some of the opposition might join him, or he might choose to go to elections on the basis of saying, okay, look, I just produced a breakthrough. So either way, I think you're gonna, you will see this government won't survive a breakthrough. Uh, and again, from the Biden administration standpoint, they will be producing a geopolitical change. Uh, not, only will you, not only are you taking the religious content out of the Arab-Israeli conflict, not only are you likely to get the, the Palestinian issue off of complete stalemate and hopelessness, but you're also, they're going to get something in return from the Saudis as it relates to China. Uh, you're not going to see, you know, there's some talk about using Chinese currency to pay for Saudi oil. That'll be gone. It'll, the dollar will remain, you know, the, the source of, of the sale of oil for the Saudis. I think you will, you will likely see uh, their commercial relationship with, with China will still exist. But the high-tech areas will fundamentally change uh, in terms of what they'll do and what they won't do. Now, in return for that, they're going to get a security guarantee from us. But that also sends a really interesting message if you think about it. The perception in the region has been we're leaving the region, which is why everybody has to hedge their bets. The minute we make a security guarantee, suddenly it says, you know what? They're not leaving the region. That changes this impulse to, to move towards hedging of bets. So this is a, when I look around the globe and I say, where could you have a geopolitical game changer? This is actually a geopolitical game changer. You know, yes, in Ukraine, you could have a geopolitical game changer, but that requires success. And I think uh, Ukraine is gonna need more in terms of things like air power to be able to produce the kind of breakthroughs that might change uh, Putin's calculus. Putin still thinks he will outlast uh, everyone. Uh, and, you know, he, the cost to Russia have to go up for him to begin to look for a way out. 
So I, I just draw that as a comparison. Here, there's a real potential for a geopolitical game changer. Ukraine is the one other place where you could see it. But at this point, it's still a stretch. The irony, of course, is I don't know how many administrations have been trying to disengage from the Middle East because they considered it hopeless. It was a diplomatic, you know, cul-de-sac and they want to pivot to Asia. They want to pivot, you know, anywhere. And now perhaps that might be a place where, as you say, a very significant diplomatic realignment and the irony being that a international agreement might in turn affect domestic policy in a way that Americans would like, because we like to have a partner that has democratic values that reflects those values. So um, it is really a um, stunning turn of events in many respects. Um, it is. Yeah. It is. You know, but I would also put it in a context. The context is also competition with China, a long-term competition with China. Uh, if the U.S. wasn't prepared to do this, because one of the elements is clearly going to be the development of the, of the Saudi nuclear industry, and the Saudis turn to the Chinese for this, then you're, you're really transforming things in a way that dramatically enhances Chinese power. So there's a, there are multiple dimensions to this, uh, and, you know, and yet it also is a reminder that the, the U.S., given all of its own domestic polarization is likely still capable of doing something that could be a geopolitical game changer. And that's also a very useful signal to send internationally. It strikes me that Biden, who of course was the vice president during the Obama administration, learned some important lessons from really, I think, a low point in U.S.-Israeli relations in terms of not antagonizing the prime minister, the same prime minister publicly in terms of working quietly behind the scenes. How would you evaluate this administration's effectiveness um, in dealing with Israel? At times, the president has been more critical than other presidents of the um, change in the judicial um, structure. He's cautioned in favor of consensus, which is kind of a buzzword for go negotiate with the opposition. But you haven't seen a level of animosity that we saw during the Obama administration. How do you evaluate that? The way I evaluate it is that I think that Biden has a deep emotional attachment to Israel. And he created a connection with the Israeli public. One of the things that President Obama didn't do uh, was create that emotional connection with the Israeli public. The Israeli public always wants to know that somehow an American president gets their predicament, understands the nature of the region, understands that those who threaten it aren't interested in compromise, uh, understands that Israel has always been beleaguered, uh, and, and in a sense is attuned to that. For President Biden, that's just part of who he is. That's been part of his makeup because of his long association and connection with Israel, having made his first trip there when he was 29 years old as a, as a young senator. Um, he has this kind of deep emotional attachment. Look, he, he calls himself a Zionist. You know, no American president, and I've done a study of them, in addition to having worked for a number of them, no American president has called himself a Zionist at a time when there are those who want to discredit and delegitimize Israel, who they want to, they want to make Zionism uh, an ideology, something other than it is. And, and he's not shy. He's not reluctant to say that about himself. So that created a connection. When he, when he went to Israel and he goes to Yad Vashem and he gets on bended knee, I mean, that for Israelis demonstrated more than anything he could have said that this is someone who understands who we are, what we have faced. So that emotional connection gives him the ability to say some of the things he's said. Uh, and it doesn't mean that, you know, the far right in Israel is not going to be critical. Of course they're going to be critical. But it means, again, within the body politic, there's, a, there's an understanding uh, and that, that was something that was never achieved during the Obama administration. The irony, I mean, I was in the first three years of the Obama administration, and I, 
wanted him to go to Israel early, especially after he went to, to Cairo. He went to Saudi Arabia and Cairo, but didn't go to Israel. Uh, and I was concerned about it. I was concerned w- how the Israeli public would read it, that they would read it as someone who is going to do things that will come at our expense. And it, that wasn't, by the way, that wasn't his intent, but that was the way they read it. He ended up going to, to Israel early in his second term, in March of 2013. And if you look at the speeches then, they were excellent. Had he gone in June of 2009 and made those statements then, he would have built a relationship with the Israeli public. You know, Israeli prime ministers need to be seen as if they're managing the U.S. relationship well. But they don't need to be seen as if they're managing the U.S. relationship well if the American president is seen as being unreasonable or or prepared to make Israel pay a price. Biden, uh, because of who he is, has a kind of built-in credibility because of, of who he is, and it allows him to say some of the things. And, you know, look, at the end of the day, will he see Prime Minister Netanyahu? Yes, he will see Prime Minister Netanyahu at some point. Well, there's a Yiddish expression. He feels it in his kishkis, in his gut. Um, yeah. And that's um, a fundamental difference. We haven't yet talked about Iran, which is significant in and of itself, because Iran was so front and center for quite a bit of time. We are out of the JCPOA. Um, Europeans are nominally in. Iran has gone past the restrictions that were placed in there, but has not gone past the brink, past breakout, because of the Israeli deterrence. Are we in kind of a new equilibrium And tell us a little bit about the status of the regime, which had itself experienced some very dramatic uh, protests uh, and upheaval. Let me start with that first and then go to the issue of of where we are in terms of equilibrium, which uh, if it's a new equilibrium, it leaves me quite worried. Um, The status of the regime is that it it faced last fall uh, with Masa Amini and, uh, you know, this young 21-year-old Kurdish woman who is arrested by the, you know, the, 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 you know, the religious police, as it were, uh, supposedly the guardians of virtue, uh, and she's killed. And it produced an extraordinary reaction throughout the country. You know, normally there's a, there's a wellspring of support for the regime within the rural countryside, but the demonstrations and reactions were everywhere countryside city, more than 100 cities, but also in the countryside. And it was as if the regime had crossed a threshold of just sheer indecency. Uh, And so it was unprecedented in terms of the scope. Having reactions, uh, protest demonstrations, we've seen them almost annually, related more to cutting of subsidies. Uh, So life becomes harder. We hadn't seen something like this that just produced a level of anger and produced chance about regime change that you really hadn't seen in the other demonstrations. Now, the regime in the end was able to put it down. Uh, and so it's, it, is, it, it is continuing to be able through the means of coercion to stay in power. I think the time when, we'll face, when it will face some potential vulnerability will be when succession comes. Uh, that'll be the moment where you're going to have some competition between institutions. The coercive institutions right now are holding together firmly. The Revolutionary Guard, the Basij, uh, they hold together firmly. But, you know, when it comes to succession, that's where you're going to see some competition, and we're likely to see some fissures then. So a, a regime that no one believes in the ideology except those who are served by it in power is fundamentally vulnerable. But it doesn't really become vulnerable until those who basically are in that elite begin to compete with each other. So long as the supreme leader is there, he controls that. The minute he's not there, then we're going to see a potential for change. So for now, I think this is a regime that will continue to manage. But again, we'll see something again next year. They'll do something else that will trigger reactions within the public. And if that comes 
on the eve of succession or in the context of succession, then the potential for change will look very different than it does today. On the issue of equilibrium, they have five to seven bombs worth of enriched uranium, probably two to three of which is to 60%, which is extremely close to weapons grade. I mean, the truth is you could produce a weapon with 60% enrichment, it would just take you a lot more of the material. So, you know, A, they have enriched material for which there is no civilian justification. You don't need it for fuel, you don't enrich to that level. And they are hardening their nuclear infrastructure. This is a bad combination because it will put them in a position at some point, certainly in the case of the Israelis, they could lose their military option entirely if they harden enough of the military infrastructure to the point where their ability to inflict damage is profoundly limited. They are building, they are developing at Natanz, which is one of their enrichment sites, a site they want to build 100 meters underground. Now, even we will find it difficult to destroy that. It'll take them several years to do it. But the point is, if they get to the point where they pretty much create an infrastructure that's largely invulnerable, then, it, then they can basically say, we'll pick and choose the time when we want to have a weapon. I believe the Supreme Leader hasn't made a decision to have a weapon, but he's made a decision to put them in a position where they could have one. Uh, and it puts us in a position where something will need to be done beyond what is happening now. Even, look, I don't believe Israel, doesn't matter who the prime minister is, I don't believe Israel will accept a situation where they face an existential threat, but they've lost a military option to deal with it. The character of Jewish history suggests that's not why Israel exists. Uh, and so I believe that we're heading towards a point that will become increasingly dangerous in terms of, the, of, the, of a potential for conflict. Unless something can be done to reverse where the Iranians are, not just to put on hold further advancement of what they're enriching, but also to put on hold what they're doing to harden their infrastructure to create a degree of invulnerability. The administration has tried to negotiate back into the JCPOA. They've had talks. Is there something that we could do to encourage the Iranians? Is the prospect of a uh, Saudi peace deal with Israel um, motivation for them to um, perhaps get serious in a negotiating context? What moves them? It seems like they're impervious to our pressure. Yeah, it looks like they, they don't respond to pressure. They don't respond to inducements. But I think it depends upon the kind of pressure. Uh, go back to 2012 when Prime Minister Netanyahu was at the UN and he had the Wiley Coyote diagram, you know, of, of anything above 20 percent. And, you know, they didn't go above 20 percent. They didn't go to 20 percent then. Uh, and, you know, when we, the, the administration, has gone to them and said, if you go to 90 percent, we will regard that as an indication you intend to, to go for a weapon and you know what the implications of that are. So they're not going to 90 percent. The problem is where they are. So the issue is, how do you create enough of a threat that they will regard as being significant uh, and, and make it credible? Uh, and there are things you can do. I think, I think we have to change our rhetorical posture. We say all options are on the table. The problem with that is that it's so routinized they don't take it seriously. So you have to say something like they've made a, they've invested in the nuclear infrastructure for the last 40 years uh, and if, they, if things don't change, uh, they're going to put all of that at risk. Now, hundreds of billions of dollars investment, they're going to put all that at risk. They need to see that. We are doing exercises now that we haven't done before, and that's good. I would like to see us do exercises where we rehearse air-to-ground operations against hardened targets. Uh, that would be a signal as well. The words mean something. At a certain point, you know, I would, you know, we, we have... I think, again, because we have, I think, threatened them in a way that they took as credible, the attacks against our forces in Syria and Iraq have pretty much stopped for the last two months. But I would like to see if, if they happened again. They have training camps in Iran for all of these proxies that they have uh, in Iraq and Syria. Uh, they're armed by them, they're trained by them, advised by them. These training camps you know, they could be hit in the middle of the night without us admitting that we did it. Uh, 
you don't want to put them in the corner where they have no choice but to respond, but you want them to get the message, we're not fooling around. I think the fact that we are, we're talking about putting some Marines on ships uh, going through the Strait of Hormuz, I think that's an important signal to them. That again, you, you can push too far and you're going to, at a certain point, you're going to provoke us in a way that you don't want to see. They don't want us to fight them. They don't want that. That they've demonstrated over time. Our problem is they don't believe we will. Uh, and if we want to deter them and if we want to, if they, we want them to understand it's dangerous for them that what they're doing is ultimately dangerous for them. You know, I, the last thing I want to see is a war, but I'm concerned that if they remain convinced we'll never do it, it makes the war much more likely because they will miscalculate. At a certain point, they will, either with us or with the Israelis. By the way, Hezbollah, and they seem to be interpreting what's going on in Israel as a sign of weakness. And Hezbollah is becoming much more provocative in ways we haven't seen Nasrallah since basically 2006 do. At a certain point, he could miscalculate uh, and we could end up with a war there. So one of the ways to deal with the, the danger of miscalculation, find different ways to communicate, multiple ways to communicate and make sure what we're communicating makes clear there are thresholds that, uh, that they're approaching that will be dangerous for them. The proof, as I said, we've seen their behavior. You know, certain things, when they, when they are convinced that there's a threshold that is meaningful, they don't cross it. Well, our time is almost up. Um, it does seem that in the Middle East, everything changes and nothing changes. I don't know how many decades we've talked about a boss wanting to die an old man in his bed. Well, he is an old man, and he still doesn't want to make a deal. We yeah. have been talking about Iran for decades now, and yet things do change. Um, and there is um, really a great deal of um, turmoil. As we finish up, um, I wonder if you'd share your reaction to the Israeli public. We've not seen a sense of unity, patriotism, of dedication to democracy of this type in Israel before. And we've seen lots of other demonstrations about religious uh, rights, about non-religious rights, about the military, non-religious. But we haven't seen something like this. Um, as we finish up, tell me what you think that says about Israelis' long-term commitment to democracy and really the health of democracy, as we've seen, which has been really endangered around the world. We had our own experience. European regimes have done some backsliding. What does this 31 weeks of demonstration tell you? It tells me a number of things. First, at a certain level, it's inspiring. Uh, the, this is a grassroots movement, uh, and it's quite remarkable, number one. Number two, it shows the depth of the democratic ethos in Israel, that Israelis are simply not going to surrender what they think could be their democratic identity. Number three, I think it will have some contagion effects. I look at the, some of the demonstrations we saw in, in, in Warsaw. I'm not sure they would have happened without everyone, the world seeing what's going on in Israel as a way of defending democracy. Now, look, we've seen now two demonstrations in Gaza. Would that have happened without seeing this? So I think there is a potential for some contagion effect. It's always easy for us to say, look, the authoritarian regimes have the upper hand. They have the instruments of coercion. They apply it liberally. But, you know, here's a reminder that the grassroots have a power when they organize themselves uh, and when there's the motivation. One of the striking things is, you know, most of the people on the right in Israel were convinced, ah, we can pass this, no problem. You know, those in Tel Aviv, they just like to drink their lattes. They'll never, you know, they'll, they'll never give up that. They'll never uh, make any sacrifices. And what they've seen is this readiness to, to, to protest in a sustained way. And they've made the flag their symbol. The symbol of patriotism, they've, they've wrapped themselves in the flag. This is about preserving Israel, and it's about preserving the best that is Israel. So I, I view it as, as inspiring, and as I said, what one sees in these demonstrations is every age group represented. Remarkable. 
It really is. And the sight of all those people of all ages, of all ethnic origins, literally wrapped in the flag, the sea of flags is quite moving. And if you want to end on a somewhat religious note, um, Israel is supposed to be a light unto nations. So perhaps its experience with democracy will, in your words, have a contagion effect, have an enlightening effect uh, on the region. Thank you, Dennis, for coming uh, on the show. You have been a just uh, wealth of information. We hope to have you back um, to explain the never-ending and yet never-changing Middle East. Thanks so much. Uh, it was a pleasure. Thanks for having me. And that was Dennis Ross. Wow. Quite a tour of the Middle East, quite a tour of Israel, which is a complicated place. Uh, it is a place of contradictions where, as he put it, you have latte-sipping secular Jews who are in Tel Aviv. You have the most religious Jews. You have Jews from around the world. And you have a government that in many respects has lost the moral support of the country. They simply don't have a mechanism, however, to get rid of it unless it implodes from within, which it could. So I think there are lessons to be learned not only about America's ability to influence other democracies, but really America's ability to influence international events that in turn will have a uh, positive effect on democracies. So we'll look for what comes out of any negotiations with the Saudis. We'll look to see what comes out of these judicial reforms. But I think it does uh, include some lessons for all of us um, as we go through our struggles with democracy, as we have this debate about the role of the judiciary in our system. So much to be considered, much to think about in the future. I look forward to having more guests like Dennis on. And thank you for joining us. Please join us again. If you liked what you heard, if you thought it was interesting, please tell your friends and have them join, listen, follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever they get their podcasts. Bye-bye. <laughs>